Have you guys, some of you have all heard the term mountaintop experience, haven't you? Anybody heard that? Okay. Now, how many of you have had at some time in your life what you would consider a mountaintop experience? Okay. All right. Cool. Good. And they can take on different forms, can't they? Now, for some of you, that may have been the day that you graduated from high school or from college. For other folks, it might be the day that you got married. If it wasn't, don't, don't let your spouse know if they're sitting next to you. <coughs> I saw Art and Dee look at each other. No, kidding. Right? Now, if you're a parent, maybe it was when your first child was born. Maybe it was when you earned that promotion or finally got that dream job that you've always wanted. Or, or maybe it was when you found out that the lab reports were wrong and you don't have cancer after all. It's those, those moments in our lives where there's just such a, a great sense of joy and celebration and happiness that you feel like you're just going to burst if you don't tell somebody about it. And you never want that moment to end. Have you felt like that? I hope you have. I hope you've had a hundred of those experiences and, and those special moments, but the mountaintop experience that we're going to talk about today and the one that I want us to, to look at and talk about is a little bit different because we're going to be talking about a mountaintop experience with God. And we actually started heading toward this subject last week in our Old Testament reading, if you remember, about God giving his Ten Commandments to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. And if you remember from the reading, it was pretty dramatic, wasn't it? With thunder and, and lightning and fire and the tangible presence of the holiness of God that came down on that mountain and sent the people falling back in fear. Fear at the realization of the gigantic gulf between the righteousness of God and his laws and the sinfulness of the people's hearts. And we ended right as Moses steps forward to be the go-between, that mediator with God, and he stands between God and the people to receive from God the regulations of animal sacrifice. The sacrifices that would serve as a, as a placeholder, a symbol, a prophetic foreshadowing of the greater sacrifice that Jesus Christ would make on our behalf to provide a forgiveness that these animal sacrifices could only illustrate. And we're going to see that in our, in our lectionary readings today. Because, you know, for the, the past several weeks now, we've been looking at 1 Corinthians as we follow through. But today, or today's lesson kind of takes a turn away from the writings of the Apostle Paul, and we're going to jump into the life of Jesus to a, a very particular moment, the moment of the scene of his transfiguration on the mountain. So we're going to shift gears a little bit here. We're going to head into the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. So this is what Matthew writes. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. And Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you, if you want, we can make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. The disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground. And Jesus came over and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus. Do you know, when we went through this gospel lesson kind of more extensively in Sunday school class, I shared with the folks 
how uh, two years ago when JJ found out that he was going to have to do his third grade science project that he picked a butterfly garden to do. Remember that, buddy? And more specifically, he did an experiment on raising and hatching monarch butterflies. And it was, it was neat. I really enjoyed seeing it and being a part of it. It was a lot of fun just to watch these tiny little yellow eggs turn into caterpillars and then to transform into butterflies through the process of metamorphosis. And it was an experience that he's never going to forget because it was very tactile and very visual right from start to finish. From, with his own hands, he planted the milkweed and all the flowers to the handling and releasing of the butterflies after they hatched. And, you know, experiential learning like that is a really big thing in schools today. And there's a reason for that. Because the more involved students get with the subject matter, the more visible and tangible it is, the better that they remember it. That's the same with me, right? I always say, to, don't tell me, show me. Let me see it. Well, the transfiguration in our reading today would certainly qualify as a pretty practical first-hand visual lesson, wouldn't it? Right? In today's reading, Peter, James, and John are led into a first-hand knowledge of Jesus that they're never going to forget. And they come away from this experience with a very real and very concrete sense of exactly who Jesus is. Because, you know, the, the monarch that they saw transformed wasn't like J.J.'s little butterflies, but was the king of heaven and earth. And it was no ordinary metamorphosis. It was glorious. It was incomparable. It's almost indescribable this type of transformation, one that changed Jesus' whole appearance. And for just a moment, for just a moment, the glory of the Godhead shone straight through him. And his disciples saw Jesus in a whole new light. They saw God in the flesh. And in fact, two of them were so moved by it, they were so impacted by it, that they were still writing about this experience when they got to their final days on earth. I want to look at those real quickly with you. Remember, he's there with Peter, James, and John, right? So, the Apostle John, when he was close to 100 years old, wrote about this in the first chapter of his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 14, he said, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Simon Peter, he was there too, right? Just before he was martyred, wrote about this in the first chapter of his second letter. Second Peter chapter 1, he writes, for we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven and we were with him on that holy mountain. Can't you just kind of picture when he's writing that? It's almost as if he's, he's remembering that scene like it was yesterday when he pens it. Because how could you ever forget a moment like that? How could you come away from it not changed? And you know, that's not all that happened because as absolutely incredible as a, a, the voice from heaven was and as the Lord's transformation was, that wasn't the only thing that happened that day, was it? There was one more thing. Because... There was one more miracle tucked in between those two, and that was the appearance of Moses and Elijah. It's a lot of stuff to happen in one day to you, isn't it? And we read, suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. And I love Peter. He goes, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, we can make three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. 
pretty dramatic, right? But before we get too far, what, what I want to know is, how did Peter recognize Moses and Elijah? You ever think about that? How did he know who these guys were? I mean, Moses had been dead around 1,400 years. The prophet Elijah had been dead something like 900 years. Yet Peter and the disciples knew them, but how? Well, in my, just my humble opinion, the answer is because they were experiencing a taste of the coming kingdom where the Bible says we will be known even as we will know even as we are known. Got a taste of that kingdom. And where we will know and be known by everyone. And they were experiencing that. And another thing here, too, in the text, when Peter recognized Moses and Elijah, what was Peter's reaction? What did he say? So you have to think about this. Now, his immediate response to seeing Jesus' face transfigured, shining like the sun, hearing the voice of the Almighty from heaven, and seeing arguably the two greatest prophets that ever lived was to want to run and grab his toolbox and erect three sheds. Right? Three booths, just so they could camp out there on the mountain. (laughs) you got to love Peter. But what was he really suggesting here? What's he talking about? In my opinion, he has in mind the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Shelters, a feast that was given to the people of Israel by God through Moses while they were still in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. As one of the three festivals that brought Jews from everywhere across the world to Jerusalem. And that law about that festival comes to us from our Old Testament Torah reading that's assigned for this week. So let's look at that together in Exodus 23. So Exodus 23, verse 14. So God said, Each year you must celebrate three festivals in my honor. First, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, or Passover. For seven days the bread you eat must be made without yeast, just as I commanded you. So that's the first festival. Second, celebrate the festival of harvest, or Pentecost, when you bring me the first fruits of the crops of your land. Finally, number three, finally celebrate the festival of of end gathering or, or tabernacles at the end of the harvest season when you have harvested all the crops from your field. And then God goes on here and gives an instruction for how they were supposed to celebrate this festival, this festival of end gathering of tabernacles, and it's also going to show us the reason why it has that name. This is Leviticus 23. God commanded for seven days you must live outside in little shelters. All native-born Israelites must live in these shelters. This will remind each generation of Israelites that I made their ancestors live in shelters when I rescued them from the land of Egypt. For I am the Lord, your God. So you see, building these these tabernacles, these booths, was nothing new to the the Jewish folks of Peter's day. They had already been doing it for over a thousand years before Peter jumps in and makes this request, and they're still doing it even today. Right? If any of you have Jewish friends, neighbors... You can see them put up these little sheds on their patios or in the backyards of their home. And depending on the time of year, anytime from late September to late October, depending when the festival falls. And these, these booths are supposed to recall Israel's hasty lodgings that they put together in the wilderness. But also God's provision for them as they travel. As they're traveling as strangers and pilgrims in the Exodus. So even though... Peter was a little bit hasty here in wanting to, to build these three sheds on the mountain. He wasn't crazy. He was, he was actually onto something. He wasn't just, just blurting out. He had in mind here 
the fact that the transfiguration of Jesus is in a sense the ultimate fulfillment of this ancient feast of shelters. The fulfillment being that God would dwell, that he would tabernacle among his people in the incarnation of Jesus. Just like we read in John chapter 1, when he said the word became flesh and made his dwelling place among us. He, he pitched his tent. He, he took up residence right here on planet earth with us. The one who put the planets into place and keeps them spinning around, the one who calls out the, the stars and the seas and made the mountains and the hills. The very God who made all the creatures that live on the earth, our holy God, became incarnate. As he's, he came in the flesh. He tended his glory and humanity when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Incredible, right? And he did that for you and for me. And there's another important element of this festival, this Old Testament festival, not to miss too. Because remember, it was also a feast that celebrated the ingathering of a harvest. You can kind of think of it like a, a larger scale version of our Thanksgiving celebration. It was a time of Thanksgiving for the autumn harvest and for prayers for rain for the soil for the next season. But it was also meant to foreshadow the spiritual harvest that would come at the end of the age. So it's, it's more than just a reminder of the past deliverance in the wilderness or of having well-stocked pantries because these tabernacles they built pointed ahead to a time when the people of all nations from everywhere will flock to Jerusalem to worship our Lord. In fact, the prophet Zechariah had written that when the Messiah comes, when he reigns on earth in the millennial kingdom, that he'll require, not request, but require that all nations come and celebrate this very festival, this festival of tabernacles in Jerusalem. And interestingly, through our study, it seems like this is the only Old Testament festival that lasts into eternity. I want to show it to you in Zechariah chapter 14. He writes, In the end, the enemies of Jerusalem who survive will go up to Jerusalem each year to worship the king, the Lord of heaven's armies, and to celebrate the festival of shelters. Any nation in the world that refuses to come to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of heaven's armies, will have no reign. And the other nations will all be punished if they don't go to celebrate this festival of shelters. So what's he talking about here? What's Peter thinking about? Well, Peter was thinking when he made this request of, of Jesus when he wanted to build these shelters, good old Peter here is pushing for the millennial kingdom to begin right then. He's ready. He knows that passage from Zechariah, and he wants the, the kingdom come to come right now, today. But as always, he jumped a little ahead of God's time, didn't he? A little ahead of schedule of God's plan. And you can't blame him, though, right? But if you notice, in kind of his eagerness to get this started, he interrupted a pretty important conversation, didn't he? He didn't exactly remember his manners because he interjects this right in the middle of Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah. And wouldn't you just love to have overheard what they were saying to each other? Right? Wouldn't you love to? Just to know what Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about? I know I would. But then my, my wife says I'm the most curious person on the planet. Because, you know, I always want to know the story behind the story. And I think that's the kind of curious she was talking about. I guess I could be curious in other ways, but, <clears throat> but anyway, I really did want to know. And for that, we have to go pick up a piece of this story from the Gospel of Luke. It gives us a little more information. So Luke chapter 9, we're going to see a little different take on it. Beginning in verse 28, 
Luke writes, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up to a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see, and they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. So I guess we know, after all, what they were talking about, don't we? I know that they've talked about now. It says they spoke to him about his exodus. He was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Referring, of course, to his death on the cross, right? Now that word here, exodus, is never used for death anywhere else, but that's what it means here. Because, you know, the Old Testament, exodus describes the bringing of the children of Israel out of slavery and into the promised land. But here, here now we have Moses who's representing that Old Testament deliverance. He spoke to Jesus, though, about another kind of exodus. One that he was going to accomplish on the cross. One that he was going to bring to fulfillment very shortly in Jerusalem. Because that really is what Jesus did for us, isn't it? Through his exodus, right? He brought about our deliverance from slavery to sin and our exodus from punishment into the promise of God's kingdom. Now, admittedly, the text doesn't give us the exact words that Moses said. But in this context, you know, you you can kind of use your sacred imagination and hear Moses almost say, Lord, the time's almost come. The time for you to fulfill that law that was given to me on Mount Sinai. The law that requires the death of a substitute for the sinner. The law that says in Leviticus chapter 17, it's the, the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. He maybe said, Lord, now we know every ceremony, every type, every sacrifice in the old covenant, all of it, all of it pointed to you. And now the time is here. And we know that without your death, Lord, there's no forgiveness for sins. Not for us. Not for anyone. And then on the other side, you've got Elijah, who represents the Old Testament prophets, looking ahead to see this Messiah. And as he spoke to Jesus, he might have said, Lord, from the beginning, all of us pointed to you. Me included, all of us prophets pointed to your work of redemption. Through the miracles you allowed us to do, and the zeal you gave us for your people, and the future hope of salvation that you held out before us. And we foreshadowed your experiences in the wilderness, and we prefigured your mountaintop experiences, and we preached through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the Son of God must suffer for the sins of his people. Just like Isaiah wrote in his scroll, he said, for all we like sheep have gone astray. All means all, right? That's all of us. And the Lord has laid upon you, upon you, Jesus, the iniquity of us all, and that by your stripes we're healed. By your stripes. Amen? And that's the the conversation that's going on here that Peter interrupts. But you know, even before Peter could finish what he was saying to Jesus, the Father interrupted him, didn't he? He kind of telling him to pay attention. We read, but even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and the voice of the cloud said, this is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy. Listen to him. In other words, Peter, shut up and pay attention. Right? Listen to him. And the disciples were terrified and fell face down to the ground. And then Jesus came over and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. So now, in the same way that the disciples knew who Moses and Elijah were, they knew who was speaking to them from that cloud, didn't they? They didn't have to ask. They knew that they were in God's presence, and even more frightening, that they were sinners in the presence of a holy God. 
And when they heard God speak, they were afraid. But you know, the transfiguration story wasn't meant to scare them or us into trusting and believing in God, was it? Because just look at how quickly Jesus came to reassure them. He didn't just reveal his glory to put the fear of God into his followers, but to confirm their faith. Because Jesus revealed his glory to show the disciples that his words were true. And Peter and, and James and John learned firsthand exactly who this Messiah is. They get a firsthand lesson. That's what the transfiguration of Jesus is about. Because after that, they knew for a fact now that they could believe everything else that Jesus had told them. So much so that the disciples were willing to die martyrs' deaths rather than deny the truth of what they saw on that mountain. And that's what it should mean for us too. That truth of his transfiguration. Jesus is showing us that we can believe in his word in this and a thousand other ways and leaves us no doubt that he is God's son and our Messiah and that he's worthy of our highest trust and of our fullest faith. Not just when we're on the mountaintop. All the time. And the last verse of our reading shows that too, proves that when we read, and when they, meaning Peter, James, and John, looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus. Only Jesus. And now they knew they wouldn't have to climb mountains to find God anymore, because he was right there with them all along. He was right there beside them. And they knew now that they didn't have to navigate mountains of commandments or try to scale heights of obscure prophecies because the days of needing a Moses or an Elijah were past. And now they saw only Jesus because that's all they needed. And that's all we need too. And you know, this morning as we've traveled along through this, we've kind of climbed to the top of God's mountain to witness the transfiguration together. And we've seen it, and for a moment while we're all together here, it's really easy to be assured that this truly is the beloved Son of God, but you know, you and I need to hold on to that, to hold on to that reality as we climb down the mountain and go back into the world outside those doors. Especially as we're going to begin our Lenten journey this Wednesday, this Ash Wednesday, where we remind ourselves with, with ashes and with repentance of the fragility of human life. We're just here for a moment. But what we're about to do through that Lenten journey is move closer and closer to that sacred moment on, on Holy Week when the death and life meet on a mountain, another kind of mountain, the one called Mount Calvary that we sang about at the beginning of the service, where our journey of faith intersects with the very life of Jesus Christ and his salvation as we make our 40-day journey through Lent that leads us to the cross. So I invite you to come with us, begin that Lenten journey. You'll be in good company. We'll do it together as we climb toward that mountain and witness the transforming love of Jesus Christ. Amen? Lord Jesus, we thank you that, that you were willing to step into this world, that you were willing to, to live and to die, that you could redeem us, Father, from this world of sin. And we ask you, Father, to just make your presence right now so real in our hearts and in our minds that you would just loosen the scales that are over the eyes of those who refuse to recognize you. You would soften the hearts of those who don't know you. That you would take out from us, Lord, that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that would know and love you. We ask you, Lord, to be with us as we go into this week and to transform us, even as the disciples saw you transformed into the glory of the Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.